6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52. Three and twentieth year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away the captains of the Jews, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. That doesn't sound like much, and that's there's a lot of scholastic discussion about these numbers. First of all, there are only the Jews and only the males. So that alone implies that there were lots more than mentioned here, but even so, the numbers are not that staggering. By the way, coming back when they're released in their Cyrus, as I recall, there's only something like 37,000 that returned. So it's uh, not a huge bunch. Like, but again, there's a lot of discussion as to whether th these are just the records. When they took records of those that were carried away captive, it's not clear that these were all only the, the only captives. It's a, there's a lot of scholastic discussion about that that I don't think bears any fruit to really go into. Verse 31, It came to pass in the seventh and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the twelfth month of the fifth, of the five and twentieth day of the month, that... Evo Merodach, and that sounds like a strange name as it's rendered in the English. He probably was an evil guy, but that's actually Emil Marduk in the Babylonian records. Part is, is the question of transliteration. When you take a, a word in another language and, and try to translate it in English, they transliterate. That is, try to spell it the way it sounded. They weren't sure how it sounded. So um, evil uh, is not an adjective in the sense of describing his character. I'm not saying it doesn't fit. It's a, it's a name. And uh, Merodach is the Hebrewization of the Babylonian Mar, uh, Marduk. And so Emma uh, Marduk is just the name of the king of Babylon, who was um, either the son or this, a son or two down from Nebuchadnezzar. In the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, and brought him forth out of prison, and spoke kindly unto him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments, and did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet there was a continual diet given him by the king of Babylon every day, a portion until the day of his death, all the days of his life. That is, of Jehoiachin's life. Now, a um, couple of things about this. Emil um, Marduk, um, there is a Jewish tradition, this is not authenticated, but there is a tradition, that during the period that Nebuchadnezzar was indisposed, now you may recall his career in the book of Daniel, there is a period of time which becomes the period of time of Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar was at his peak, and uh, uh, Daniel had predicted to him that he was going to have a um, seven-year set down. He does. That is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of pride, takes credit for all his achievements, and God... Uh, hangs on him a strange form, it's called lycanthropy, where he has a mental derangement, and he literally acts like a beast and eats grass. It's a strange type of mental derangement. And this derangement lasts seven years. At the end of the seven years, he's miraculously healed, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this as a as a uh, uh, indication from God that indeed he is the God, and he puts up 
who he will and down who he will. And Nebuchadnezzar describes this whole issue in his own words in Daniel 4. Daniel 4 is a testimony by Nebuchadnezzar to the world. Well, there is a Jewish tradition that during that seven years that Nebuchadnezzar, in effect, was, what shall I say, on medical leave, where he was, uh, you know, confined. And by the way, there's also a tradition that the person that took care of Nebuchadnezzar during those seven years was none other than our friend Daniel. Daniel was very uh, an interesting relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. They were sort of adversaries, uh, yet Nebuchadnezzar, bear in mind, was a young king, well, a young general that was promoted king when his dad died about the time that Nebuchadnezzar was a teenager in the court and interprets this dream. They have a very interesting relationship. And it's, in fact, um, years later, after Nebuchadnezzar is uh, long gone, Daniel's an old man and called by um, uh, Belshazzar, who was actually the a son a couple of generations later who was in charge of Babylon during the handwriting of the wall. And, and that, when you read that in Daniel 5, the fall of Babylon, you, when Daniel interprets the handwriting of the wall, before he does that, he really puts down the uh, grandson to you know your dad your grandfather he was the king you know he put up he put up he put down he put down I mean, he, he he not you punk i mean that's sort of the way you get the feeling if you were doing a, a shooting script you could easily put that in today's vernacular without trying very hard in any case uh, nebuchadnezzar obviously has a very high feeling for i mean uh, daniel has a very high feeling for nebuchadnezzar in any case there is a jewish tradition that during the period of time that nebuchadnezzar was indisposed that um, Amon Marduk was in charge for a while, but there's also a tradition that he screwed up. He got caught doing something he shouldn't have, and he was put in prison for a while. While in prison, he gets acquainted with Jehoiachin. So later on, when he comes out, he gets out of that difficulty, and of course Nebuchadnezzar returns, but then finally dies, and he, Amon Marduk, is now in charge. He remembers his buddy in prison, Jehoiachin. So he doesn't free him but he takes him out of prison and puts him on special rations and 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 gives him, you know, court because he is, after all, a king. He's in exile. He's in he's in prison. He's under arrest. But he's not abused. He's given rations. Now, here's what's interesting. That all that's just a tradition. We don't know if it's true. But we do know from cuneiform cuneiform writing, tablets that were found, there are lists of the rations that Imam Marduk provided Jehoiachin. His daily diet and stuff is has been found. And it's you know, in other words, records that confirm that, which is kind of interesting, you know. And uh, it always bothers, it's always exciting to see that, and yet it's always disturbing. Why do we need cuneiform tablets to prove to us that, you know, the Bible's right? This, all this proves is that the tablets are correct, you know. But uh, uh, we sometimes look at it the other way. Right. No, okay, you got that. Okay. So that's the book of Jeremiah. Now, we got something else that, uh, that I, I think, before I go on, I got something else I'll share with you you might find interesting. But before, uh, before I do, uh, I'd like to deal with the book of Lamentations. It's not part of the book of Jeremiah. I'm not going to take you through it chapter by chapter. I think you'd find that rather lengthy. Um, furthermore, it is really stands on its own feet. So the five-chapter book that's sort of like an appendix to the book of Jeremiah is, uh, has somewhat the quality of the Psalms. It's his Lamentations. Now you say, gee, I thought the book of Jeremiah was pretty sorrowful in its own right. Well, the Book of Lamentations is his outpouring, and uh, it makes sense. The more you understand Jeremiah, the more you'll get out of taking yourself through the Book of Lamentations, where Jeremiah essentially mourns for Jerusalem. The poor guy, on the one hand, was faithful in his, in his, his office of a, as a prophet, and he, he told forth what God told him to tell forth, i.e. that um, Jerusalem was going to be judged for iniquity. On the other hand, Jeremiah was not a um, 
traitor. He was a patriot. He loved his country. He loved the city. His roots there, his emotional commitment to Judah was absolutely uncompromising. So he's in a tough spot. On the one hand, he has to tell it like it is. On the other hand, he weeps for what he knows is the inevitable mourning and anguish of the city. And the book of Lamentations deals with that. You can, as you go through from your study in the book of Jeremiah, there's really very little I can add as you go through. There's one thing I'll point out, small point, but uh, I'll let you go through that. I will share with you one thing, though, that you can for your notes. You might find interesting. There's, there's some, the, the book of Lamentations, you can sit down and read it through and get a feeling for the soul of the man, this guy, he, as he weeps for uh, his, his people. But the, what you are not familiar with, or you couldn't, you'd have no way of perceiving, is the, what lies behind the English. In the Hebrew, it is composed almost like a symphony. It has a very unusual linguistic structure. Chap the first four chapters are an acrostic. Now, what an acrostic is, uh, the uh, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 4 consists of 22 verses each. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each verse starts with the next letter. Now, by the way, we use the term alphabet very glibly. Did you realize it's a Hebrew word? Aleph, first letter, Beth is the second, and so forth. If we said our ABCs, that's in English. Alphabet is saying it in Hebrew and has become a word in the English meaning our ABCs. Okay, this is a little aside, little no charge, that extra charge. That's a, um, now, in the Hebrew alphabet, there are only 22 letters, not 26 like in the English or 24 in the Greek, but there's 22. And there are 22 verses in chapters 1, 2, and 4, and each verse starts with, in the Hebrew, a, uh, the, next, the first one starts with Aleph, the second with Beth, and so on. And that structure is maintained in chapters 1, 2, and 4. Now, you're probably saying, well, what happened to chapter 3? Well, chapter 3 is the chapter which is the fullest confession of sin, the sin of Judah. That has 66 verses. Okay, what's 6 the number of? Man, one short of seven, incomplete. Sin is also number of, name of sin, number of sin, so to speak. So there's 66 verses. In this case, they start, there are th the first three verses start with Aleph. The next three verses start with Beth, etc. It's a, again an acrostic, but in groups of three. The 22 letters, each used three times, make up the 66 verses. Isn't that interesting? I don't, think you'd, I don't think you'd be able to figure that out from the English, so I thought I'd throw that out there. Now, there is a psalm that does this sort of. Psalm 119 consists of 22 divisions of eight verses each. It also has an acrostic structure, and that's why in your Bibles, if you look at many of your English Bibles, you can always find the Hebrew alphabet. If there's no place else, you can find it in Psalm 119 because it blocks out the 22 divisions with the Hebrew letters, Aleph, Beth, and so forth. And uh, they start with the, the, uh, the letter, you know, the first letter. It's, it's also what's called an acrostic. Now, for some reason, I don't know why, chapter 5 of the book, the last chapter of the book of Lamentations, also has 22 verses, just like chapters 1, 2, and 4. However, it's not an acrostic. It doesn't have that property for some reason. Why? I don't know. 
Uh, I'll, I'll give you one more insight, small point, but it's an interest to me, a fascinating little footnote in Lamentations. It happens to occur in the first verse of the first chapter. And, and the whole style of the book of Lamentations is deep poetry of a, of a, of a mournful, sorrowful, uh, uh, lam lamenting kind of nature. And so it, there's a lot of uh, very, very um, poetic language. But in verse 1, Jeremiah jumps right in and says, How doth the city sit? Speaking of Jerusalem, the whole thing is about Jerusalem. It's morning over Jerusalem. How doth the city sit, lonely, that was full of people? How has she become a widow? She that was great among the nations, a princess among the provinces, how has she become a vassal? Now, I find this provocative, this phrase widow, and there's several places in the scripture where Jerusalem or, or Israel is spoken of as a widow. But specifically, I think I mentioned this before, but I think it's worth pointing out, when we studied the book of uh, the, um, the, uh, the topic of Babylon, we went into chapter, Revelation chapter 18, where there is depicted mystery Babylon, this strange creature that surfaces at the end time, and there's much speculation as to what Mystery Babylon is, deriving her, her conceptual identity from literal Babylon. That's why we took it up last time. But I do call your attention to uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 7, where she Mystery Babylon makes a strange boast. Mystery Babylon is going to ride this political empire as it grows, but the political empire ultimately will turn on her and devour her. But in verse 7 it says that how much she hath, that is Mystery Babylon, hath glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, now notice her boast, I sit a queen and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. So for some reason, as you explore the book of Revelation, those of you that are in the advanced course, as you probe the identity of the strange thing called Mystery Babylon, recognize that it is deliberately structured in many ways, I'm just picking out one, to be contrasted with Israel. Now it's interesting when you uh, learn words. It's often you can learn words by definitions. The connotative and denotative aspects of it, that is the general class to which a word belongs, then the denotative class, how it differs from the other members of that class, right? There's another, you know, if you're learning a word, I don't know if I'm going too fast here, a de definition of a word, usually it needs two key in elements. The, the general class to which it belongs, the connotation, and then how it that one differs from the other members of the class, you see. You know, if I said a, a poodle is a dog, that's the general class, that, blank, 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 that somehow describes it as how's it, how's it different from other dogs. That's the definition. That would be one way of creating a definition. There is another way when you, lean, when you deal with words conceptually to learn words, and that's to know what the opposite is. You see? The word love. If you think the opposite is hate, you're wrong. What's the opposite of love? Fear. You got it. See, that's useful, isn't it? So sometimes it helps us as we make our associative maps, these, these conceptions of these, these idioms we call words or graphs or whatever, it's sometimes to understand opposites. So if you recognize that Mystery Babylon, whatever she is, is setting herself in contrast to Israel, God's chosen. Now, 
There's something else that's kind of interesting. Maybe this is the time to sort of since we're we're not going to go through we have a choice. We go through Lamentations verse by verse, but that would be long and tedious. I'm going to leave that to you for the summer. Those of you inclined, sit under a tree and read Lamentations. It'll take care of itself. You might find it interesting to notice some of the instructions to the priests in the Torah. Bear with me and travel with me as I fake it here to try to remember where I find this stuff because I haven't got this in my notes. In the book, in the Torah, there is instructions, our instructions, and among those instructions are instructions for the priests. In the Torah in Leviticus, there are instructions to the priests. Here we go, I want 21. Leviticus chapter 21 has some instructions concerning the priests, and I find verse 14 fascinating. A widow and a divorced woman, a profane and harlot, these shall he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as his wife. And I find it very, very interesting that uh, our high priest is described, obviously metaphorically, but described by Paul as taking to him the church, what, as the adulterous, widowed, divorced wife of Jehovah? That's the image of Israel in the Old Testament. No. What is... The high priest, our high priest, take to him the wife, a virgin bride. Ephesians elsewhere, Paul uses that idiom very articulately of the church. So that's kind of interesting. Now, as long as we're in Leviticus, and this will give me an excuse to touch base on something that's way out. See, the good, the 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 the, the, the bad news is I'm not going to carry you through all the other parts of Lamentations. We're going to take a break. We're through with Jeremiah. But I I'll, we'll put a little appendix of our own on the study of Jeremiah by looking at it in a very obscure prophecy. Hold yourself in Leviticus here. I'm going to come back to it. Um, before I give you the solution, or one possible solution, let me show you the problem. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 4. And I'd like to just touch upon a prophecy in Ezekiel for which I'm not giving you a clear answer. I'm going to give you an incomplete, provocative possibility. With a mature group like this, I indulge in wanderings out in left field. And um, some of you say, Boaz's field is on the right. You can glean there. You don't go out in left field. That's somebody else's. Well, that's probably correct. On the top of your notepad, before you go any further, you put Acts 17.11, which says, don't believe anything Chuck Missler tells you, especially tonight, because we're going some wild stuff. In the book of Ezekiel, there is a strange prophecy that really has not had, in my opinion, any adequate explanation. Uh, Ezekiel was frequently given an object lesson to demonstrate to the people. Ezekiel was professionally trained as a priest in the office as a prophet. He was a public figure. He was told to do some strange things as a way of communicating to the people. And you might enjoy just a review. I think most of you were in the Ezekiel study, but we'll review chapter 4, verse in Ezekiel chapter 4, it says, uh, God says to Ezekiel, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So apparently he, art, art, you know, artists something on this tile, make meaning Jerusalem. And it says, And lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast a mound against it and set a camp also against it and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take unto thee an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city and set thy face against it, and it shall be sieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it, and this shall be a sign unto the house of Israel. He was playing with soldiers. 
you know, someplace, presumably in some public spot, he went out there and got his little tile and made his little mound and did his little thing. People probably thought he was nuts, right? We don't know how it was handled, whether this was done some way so they understood that there was a ceremonial demonstration or whether he did this just to attract attention, let them all wonder, you know. That's not clear, but he did somehow go through this physical expression as a mechanism to communicate an object lesson to the people. Verse 4. Now he's told to do something else. Lie also upon thy left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have, I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on the right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Therefore shalt thou set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, thine arm shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. Behold, I will lay the cords upon thee, and thou shalt not turn from one side to the other till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. Now, what we're not quite sure how he actually did this. We don't know if he just actually laid out there in the plaza with his little toys, uh, for you know, with the pan and the tile and all this stuff, for 300 years. Well, it's actually 390 plus 40. It's a total of 430 days. That's a year plus. That's a lot of days. Now, yeah, you get uh, you get some saddles. Or the 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 presumption is, but we don't know. The presumption is that he did it maybe for a few hours a day ceremonially, and for and that and that's quite a while. This is quite an event. He makes his point. He's getting it across to them. Now. So much for the thing, I won't dwell on this, that's the study of Ezekiel. But the real problem is we don't know what, you say, okay, there's, there is, uh, you know, uh, 390 days plus 40 days, that's 430 days. And they don't fit anything. Now also here, it's the only place in the Bible that I'm aware of where it's a day for a year. That's a principle you'll often hear people talk about, but there's no other place in the Bible where it fits to my knowledge but here. And here God expressly says it's a year for a day, or a day for a year. Now, so there are apparently 490 years that there's going to be uh, judgment you know, uh, upon Israel for iniquity. Now, as you go through history and you study your Bible and get out your charts and mess around with this thing, you'll discover it doesn't fit anything. You know, it doesn't... Yeah. Now, Israel is more than Judah because they were in sin longer. But even if you play with that one, it doesn't really seem to fit comfortably. Judah was sinning for more than 40 years, although it was roughly 40 years that Jeremiah had his ministry, so that maybe fits, but Israel's even more complicated question. But more importantly, for four, for the combination, for four, for 390 plus 40, that is for 430 years, we got to somehow fit this. Well, one author I came across years ago pointed out, felt that, gee, well, 70 of the 430 years, we can account for the Babylonian captivity. So 70 is no problem. We take 70 from 430, that leaves 360 left over, right? Now this character pointed out, I felt erroneously, or kind of far-fetched, he, took a, he took a, took, went into Leviticus. In fact, he didn't exactly say where he got this in Leviticus, but after prowling through Leviticus, I assume that what he was referring to is, I think it's chapter 25, 26, 
by the time you get to chapter 26, all kinds of rules have been let down, all kinds of instructions. And then we get from verse 3 of chapter 26 on, we have conditions of blessing and conditions of judgment. And uh, in, in verse 3 on, he says, if you walk in my statutes, keep my commandments, and all these neat things are going to happen. And he lays that all out. We get about to verse 14, and get, you start getting warnings. In other words, the good news and bad news. You keep my commandments, all these good things are going to happen. If you don't, verse 14, I will, but if you will not hearken unto me and will not do these commandments, if you will despise my statutes and your soul abhor mine ordinances and shall, will not do all my commandments, but you break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. And then he goes on to describe the bad news. I'll appoint you over you terror, consumption, the burning fever, it consume the eye. All these grim things are going to happen, right? It's good news. Now, we get to verse 18, he says, And if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And we get down to verse 21, he says the same thing again. If you will walk contrary unto me and will not hearken to me, I will bring you seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Right? When you get to verse 24, he says, When you walk contrary to you, I will punish you yet seven times more for your sins. And he says this a fourth time in verse 28. Uh, uh, then I will walk contrary unto you, and for I, even I, will chastise you seven times more uh, for, you know, for your sins. Now, kind of interesting to me, because that I think the, I felt the guy was kind of reaching stuff. And now his argument was this particular writer said, "Gee, now if you take if you, if you take seven times, we have of the four hundred and thirty years, seventy are accounted for the Babylonian captivity. Terrific." What about the other 360? Well, if you multiply that by seven, you get 2,520 years, which is approximately the time that Israel has been dispersed throughout the world. You see, that, the Babylon captivity is over roughly the 500 years before Christ, has been roughly 2,000 years, and isn't that terrific? Well, I happen to remember all this. I didn't buy it for lots of reasons. First of all, I thought this was a little far-fetched, and I didn't, hadn't really found the spot yet, but the whole thing sounded a little... You read all the, you know, one thing, you, there's, there's all kinds of characters, all kinds of things. And I guess I'd become one. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.